Hello everyone and welcome back to What Would Nurses Do? An original evidence-based practice podcast where we take a deep dive into the world of evidence-based practice and the history of some of the things that we do as nurses. What Would Nurses Do? is the most up-to-date, often funny, and occasionally odd evidence-based practice podcast made by nursing students for nursing students. I'm your host, Madeline Larimore, and this is episode 11, IVs in a Flash. Today, I have many exciting guests joining me in the episode to dive into the very exciting topic of IV insertion, where I got started, and what the best practicing nurses are doing now, and where IV insertion is going. This podcast would be a particular interest to any emergency room nurses, trauma nurses, paramedics, L&D nurses, OB triage, and especially med surge nurses who will be putting in IVs day in and day out. Um, new nurses, this would be a great podcast for you to listen to in order to uh, improve your efficacy as a nurse, as well as make yourself a great resource to the floor you're working on. Peripheral IV access is routinely required in healthcare settings around the world, yet failure rates for first-time uh, IV insertion attempts are surprisingly high. Studies conducted among adults in emergency settings reveal that a more than one quarter or 26% of first insertion attempts fail. Findings for pediatric patients are even more alarming. More than half of first insertion attempts fail in across diverse settings. With that being said, the evidence-based practice for IV insertion um, has changed a lot since its invention, and the first guest on the podcast will go more into depth on this. I would like to introduce Elenia Cantrell. Thanks, Maddie. In the article Now and Then, The History of Parenteral Fluid Administration, Balsam and Kleeman from the UCLA School of Medicine wrote, first IV therapies were developed in the 16th century based on William Harvey's report on circulation. Initially, there were poor outcomes as the first IV infusion was made with plague's bladder and a quill. Yikes. After an outbreak of cholera, physicians recognized that death was caused by dehydration and not blood disease as they initially assumed, so they needed solutions. According to Cosnet in the article, The Origins of IV Fluid Therapy, in 1831, Dr. O'Shaughnessy found that water and saline were lost from the cholera victim's blood, making it thick and suggested that it be restored to specific gravity. In 1832, Dr. Latta built on this discovery using a syringe and silver tubing to revive eight of 25 patients with IV saline. Importance of IV infusion was recognized, but there were high risk factors related to IV access like sepsis. It was only given to critically ill patients and eventually progressed to fluids being poured into an open glass flask covered with gauze attached to rubber IV tubing. In the article, History of Parenteral Nutrition, written by Drs. Venners and Wilmore, other liquids experimented with were 10% glucose infusions as well as milk infusions. Obviously, saline was deemed to have the best outcomes over time. In 1885, something similar to an IV fluid administration protocol was published. Hayam, a famous hematologist, strongly urged use of saline solutions, suggesting two liters must be injected to increase red blood cells. Balsam and Kleeman note that the 20th century brought IV success with Landsteiner's discovery of blood groups leading to human-human transfusion. The 1950s brought invention of plastic needle by Dr. Mesa, aseptic technique and plastic IV bags by Carl Walter, and the explosion of clinical application of IV therapy. Thank you, Elenia. And staying on the topic of present day, I would like to invite Sylvia McKinney on to discuss the current research regarding IV insertion. 
Thank you, Maddie. Venue punctures can be a pretty challenging procedure, isn't it? Luckily, the advancement in technologies could help us in IV insertion, but are they effective? The first technologies I'll be discussing is ultrasound. If you're a nurse or student nurse, you should be pretty familiar with this term. But if you don't, ultrasound basically uses high-frequency sound waves. There was a study done in 2016 by MacArthur and the team. They determined if ultrasound guidance will have higher success rate for peripheral IV insertions for patients with difficult and easy venous access, or by using the traditional approach where we visually inspect and palpate to basically feel for the vein. The results shown that patients with difficult venous access have higher success rate um, with ultrasound guidance, whereas the traditional approach yield a higher success rate for patients with um, easy venous access. So it really boils down to the visibility of the patient's venous access and the skill of the nurse regardless the use of technologies. All right, second technologies about acute vein. Acute vein is a device that locates a vein using infrared light to detect the hemoglobin in blood. I found two articles that talk about acute vein separately, and they have totally different school of thought about it. The first article is from 2015 by Dr. Lenya and his team. They actually concluded that they were hesitant about using acute vein device on adult patient. Here are their findings. First, acuvain have little effect on shortening the time for successful IV insertion. Second, acuvain does not decrease the number of time for IV insertions and pain intensity experienced by patients. Third, the operator's opinions on acuvain showed more negative than positive appreciation. Therefore, the use of acuvain does not have significant effect on peripheral IV insertions in adult patients. Now, the second article is by Dermias and Savos. In 2017, they did a similar study, but they focused on pediatric patients instead. Their data actually contradicts Dr. Lena's studies because it shows that the number of time for IV insertions was significantly lower and the operation's duration with acuvain was unexpectedly shorter. So, Maddie, although acuvain and ultrasound technologies can improve IV insertion, but I believe more studies are still needed to test the efficacies of these technologies if we're going to use it for routine use. That was great, Sylvia. There's so much more information that backs up best practice of IV insertion. And to provide more resources, I would like to invite Tony Clemens up. Thank you, Maddie. So I found a systematic review by Jay Webster. He conducted a study with over 7,000 participants to determine the possibility of catheter-related bloodstream infections when inserting peripheral IVs. When routinely replacing peripheral IV catheters, there was a reduced rate of infiltration on the surrounding tissue compared to the clinically indicated replacement. However, by clinically changing peripheral IV catheters, there is evidence of reduced device-related costs. Resighting can cause unnecessary pain and is a greater time constraint on the already busy nurses. Instead, nurses should check the peripheral IV catheter site for any complications often. In doing so, the hospital can save money and have a higher patient satisfaction rate. Sylvia had mentioned the number of IV attempts earlier. I found a meta-analysis by PJ Carr that was conducted to determine the success rate of inserting a peripheral intravenous catheter for the first time to patients in the emergency department. The study consisted of 879 emergency department patients with a median age of 60.9 years old. 27% of patients required one or more attempts. The factors influencing the success rate were age, target vein palpability, and pre-insertion competence. By matching patients that are older and have less palpable veins with a nurse who is confident in their IV insertion skills may greatly reduce the risk of having to attempt insertion multiple times. 
Sintera hospitals provide practice guidelines for IV insertions. Some that support our evidence include performing no more than two attempts at peripheral IV placement per staff member and limit the total attempts to no more than four. So if four unsuccessful attempts have been made, another plan for vascular access is required. Also, the guidelines state that the nurse need to consider the use of visualization technologies and appropriate methods to promote vascular distension to aid in vein identification and selection, especially for patients known to have difficult access. Tani, you certainly are a great resource for the best practice of IV insertion. To further go into nursing interventions regarding IV insertion, I would like to welcome up Jamie Ferris and David Hunt onto the pod. Thank you for that introduction, Maddie. According to Fundamentals of Nursing Concepts and Competencies for Practice, 9th edition by Ruth Craven, current interventions for IV insertion are hand hygiene because it reduces microbe transmission that can cause infection, also cleaning the insertion site before insertion with an approved antimicrobial agent is a must as it also reduces the risk of infection from prior germs that could become opportunistic pathogens already on the skin. Before inserting the IV, you must also disinfect the catheter hubs for a minimum of 15 seconds with 70% alcohol. While inserting the IV, practice guidelines suggest inserting the needle at a 20 to 30 degree angle while entering the skin parallel to the vein. Once the IV is inserted, you must check for blood return to determine you have placed the device in the right place, the vein. Once you have finished the insertion, nurses must then apply a dressing. The most commonly used type is a transparent semi-permeable dressing. Dressing the site helps to secure the IV, and a transparent dressing allows air to pass through the dressing, but it's not impervious to microorganisms. After dressing the IV, it's very important to label the dressing. Labeling the dressing includes time, date, device type, gauge, size, and the nurse's initials. Labeling promotes communication with other healthcare personnel and also ensures that tubing, dressing, and solutions are maintained according to facility policy and standards of care. Effective patient and caregiver education is also one of the four key areas of practice essential to positive patient outcomes according to the Gorski model for safe infusion therapy. Hello, as Maddie said earlier, my name is David, and I'm here to discuss the interventions that Jamie just talked about, specifically what level are they classified in the evidence hierarchy, whether there is sufficient evidence for the interventions to warrant a change in policies and procedures at major medical centers, and if there are any inconsistencies between our interventions and the policies and procedures at major medical centers, using the Centera guidelines for IV insertion as our example. So starting off with the interventions of hand hygiene, insertion site sanitation, catheter hub disinfection, 20 to 30 degree needle insertion, dressing application, and proper dressing labeling, this would rank as a 7 in the evidence hierarchy, as the guidelines come from a textbook, which uses compiled information obtained from various experts and experts' opinions, but is generalized in a clinical trial when the information was not performed directly. That being said, the interventions are already well established in the medical field, which is shown by all these interventions being in the Centera guidelines, with no discrepancies or inconsistencies being found. Any healthcare center that doesn't use these interventions should implement them. Discussing the Gorski model next, support for this model comes from an article written by the Infusion Nurses Society, or INS for short. The level of evidence for this article would be classified as a 5, as it conducted a widespread systemic review of nursing literature and sent out emails and phone calls to experts at various medical organizations, but does not conduct any randomized controlled trials or cohort studies. That being said, the Gorski model is the core model for the INS standards of practice, which are utilized in healthcare organizations across the United States. I do not know if Sentara specifically has guidelines using the Gorski model, but I could not find any real inconsistencies between Sentara policies and the standards of practice from the INS. 
As such, any healthcare organization can and should implement aspects of this model as it contains information collected from medical organizations around the United States and according to the article was reviewed by 59 healthcare personnel. Thank you so much, Jamie and David. That was great. And thank you to the rest of our guests for joining me today. Just to wrap up, it's clear that IV insertion has come a long way since the introduction of mainstream use. As today, we use ultrasounds as best practice to guide IV insertion to prevent failure, and there's a multitude of research that guides practice on how to prevent catheter-related bloodstream infections, thrombophilitis, and more. Areas that need additional systemic research, our group has concluded that um, how ultrasound-guided insertion should be more accessible in nursing units, making IV teams more efficient, growing hospital IV teams, and preventing pain associated with IV access would be great topics for our next episode of the podcast. But that's all for now. This is your host, Madeline Laramore. On behalf of our very knowledgeable and quite esteemed guests, Alania, Sylvia, Tani, Jamie, and David, thank you for listening to what would nurses do the evidence-based practice podcast by nursing students for nursing students don't forget to join us on our next episode on anchor or wherever you listen to your podcasts bye